And this is our last lesson together, but it's good to remember the life of discipleship does not consist in 22 lessons. In a real sense, these lessons are not where discipleship happens. The real life of discipleship happens outside these groups in our relationships and how we spend our, our money, how we do our work, how we spend our lives. You might recall we said back in lesson three that Jesus has already made the mission of the church clear. Our mission has already been spelled out by our Lord. We are to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple of Jesus is a real-life apprentice of Jesus who, by grace and by choice, is learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God today. An apprentice of Jesus is someone who adjusts his lifestyle, schedule, and priorities to spend time with Jesus in order to become capable of living our lives as Jesus would. I'm repeating this because we suggested over these weeks that discipleship is the great omission in American churches today. And back in chapter, or lesson three rather, we suggested some possible causes for this omission. But today and in closing, let's tighten our lens on one primary culprit. I believe our gospel is too small. What is the gospel? How would you define the gospel? Did your answer include what Jesus talked about more than anything else? He opened his ministry with this phrase. He filled his ministry by teaching about this and telling us what it's like. And Luke, he says explicitly that this is why he was sent, quote, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So is it so surprising after he was raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples that this, we are told, is what Jesus was speaking about, quote, the kingdom of God. That's Acts 1-3. Most all New Testament scholars agree the kingdom was the central theme of Jesus' life and teaching. So then, how is it that so few Christians today have any sense of what the kingdom is or how it ties in with the gospel? Why, when asked what is the gospel, would so few of our answers include any reference to the kingdom of God? Could it be that for far too many of us, we have reduced the scope of what God has done for us down to Christ dying for our sins on the cross? To be sure, the cross is at the very center of who Jesus is and what he did. The cross is of first importance, the very center of the gospel. Without the cross, there would be no good news. And yet, could it be that for far too many of us, we have separated the cross of Christ from the kingdom of God to the point that most of us have little clue how to hold these themes together? Could it be that uh, most of us have little sense of what it means that God's establishing his kingdom on earth is the through line of the entire Bible? The Bible, one writer put it, is most fundamentally a narrative. And the kingdom of God is the thematic framework for that narrative. He's saying the story of the Bible is in many ways the story of the king and his kingdom. That what was lost in one garden through one man will be restored in another garden through another man. Fulfilling God's original design for all creation. The fact that most churchgoers don't understand how the Bible fits together. How to hold together cross and kingdom. It's not our fault. 
How much time do we hear? How much do we hear about the kingdom of God in our churches? These are not academic questions. They get to the very heart of why the life of discipleship is strangely absent from many churches today. These questions have the most practical effect on other questions like what's the mission of the church or how do faith and work uh, complement one another. The reason that so many well-intentioned Christian men and women have so little idea how to incorporate uh, their faith into their work is because we don't hear about the gospel of the kingdom on Sundays. One uh, scholar, Gordon Fee, once said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand the term. I'm sorry to say it this strongly, he says, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Oh, how much we need a more robust vision today of what salvation really entails. By his life and death, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. And by his resurrection, he has established a beachhead of the new creation. A seed has been planted, a tree that will grow and one day cover the whole earth with the glory of God. Until that day, it's the mission of the church to be agents and representatives of God's kingdom on earth. We are ambassadors of what life lived under King Jesus looks like. We are called to be a foretaste of what God intends life to be like, a colony of heaven here on earth. The fact that we don't understand how the story of the Bible hangs together from Genesis to Revelation is not a mere literary oversight. This misreading has real consequences, especially in how we see our lives, our mission as God's people. I believe that we have misread the Gospels, conservatives and liberals alike, and this has caused us to miss the heart of Jesus' message, which has caused us to miss Jesus and misrepresent him to the world. To prove that, let me start with a scene from those Gospels. You might recall Jesus was crucified between two thieves, One of these turned to him and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One writer points out this scene is so famous that we are prone to overlook what's so strange about it, that that thief is looking over at someone bloodied and beaten, pummeled and crucified, yet somehow associated this condemned man with someone who was ushering in a new kingdom. Maybe it was the crown of thorns. Maybe it was the sign above Jesus' head that read, King of the Jews. But somehow that man put together what we have put asunder, cross and kingdom. N.T. Wright puts it, We have all forgotten what the four Gospels are all about. My interest in this question began many years ago, reading the Gospels for the first time and asking questions like, What's the difference between the Gospel and the Gospels? Do the Gospels preach the Gospel? In my understanding of the gospel, I didn't really need the gospels. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom. So if kingdom is indeed central to Jesus, why is it not central to us? I had heard a lot about the cross of Jesus, how he died for me, what the cross had achieved, but I'd heard very little about the kingdom, and I didn't understand how they fit, cross and kingdom. 
to my way of thinking, there seemed to be cross churches, churches that talked a lot about getting people saved, getting people into heaven. These tended to be conservative and evangelical. They tended to have a king, but no kingdom. On the other hand, there seemed to be kingdom churches, churches that talked a lot about justice and reform movements. These tended to be liberal and progressive. They had a kingdom, but no king. Each camp was suspicious of the other and accused the other of missing what was so plainly the heart of Jesus. But I kept coming back to the Gospels, and I noticed something that's right in front of the reader, but most of us have never been trained to recognize, that the story of Jesus does not appear in a historical vacuum. The story of Jesus, the Gospels, are written as the culmination, the climax of Israel's story. And if you miss that, you will miss the significance, both of what comes before Jesus and what comes after. If you sever the story of Jesus from the story of Israel, you miss the heart of why exactly Jesus' coming is good news for the whole world. You miss the story, and it's a big story. Just for today, take the opening of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was Jewish, and his first followers were Jewish men and women, whose entire world was shaped by Israel's scripture, what we call the Old Testament. Their imagination was steeped in its stories and promises. And it's clear that the gospel writers, each in their own style, saw the life and death of Jesus in reference to those old stories and promises. The gospel writers believed that Jesus' teaching and his actions, his miracles and with whom he ate, his suffering and ultimately his death and his subsequent vindication, the gospel writers saw in Jesus the culmination and climax of the story of Israel. Everything before and everything after, everything hangs on Jesus. The whole story of the gospels is telling how God became king on earth as it is in heaven. God has become king in and through Jesus of Nazareth. The story of Jesus, you could say, is the story of how Israel's God has become earth's king. One of the strange things is that all the writers of the New Testament assume Jesus is king now. Well, you might ask, if Jesus is king, why is there cancer? Why genocide? Those are good questions for another talk. But today, I'm just going to show you what I think for many of us is a new way of reading the Gospels. Each of the four, different as they are, narrates the story of Jesus as the continuation and fulfillment of Israel's story, and that matters. The closer you study the Gospels, the number of Old Testament citations and echoes is expansive. But what, I, what we'll do today is just glance at the opening of the Gospel of Mark. And you could do the same thing with Matthew, Luke, or John. Here I'm getting help from Richard Hayes, who helps walk the reader through the echoes of the beginning of Mark's gospel. And Mark's a good example because the other gospel writers are more explicit. They'll say things like, this took place to fulfill. But Mark uh, pays you the compliment of assuming that you're listening closely. He's an artist and he's very subtle. When the curtain rises on his drama, Israel is still in exile, as it were. They are under the thumb of Gentile powers, in this case, Rome, and its king, Caesar. Despite God's past favor centuries ago under the power of King David, the people of Israel are now in a state of subjugation, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Yet so many centuries ago, God had promised to send a Messiah, the Greek word is Christos, a son of David, a future king, to deliver and restore the kingdom of David and put Israel's long suffering to an end. And where does Mark find such a hope? In Israel's own scripture, particularly in the Psalms and the prophets. Near the end of Isaiah, the prophet appeals to God to tear open the heavens and come down and rescue the people. That's Isaiah 64. Well, Mark echoes that story at Jesus' baptism, Mark 1, verse 9, where we are told Jesus saw, quote, the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove. See, Mark is letting his readers know that Jesus is God's answer to Isaiah's cry for God to come down. He's saying God has come down in this man, Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, a role designation. It means Messiah, promised deliverer. Mark aims to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ in whom both judgment and salvation, as the prophets had foretold, were coming upon God's people. Look at Mark. Jesus' first words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's Mark 1, verse 15. The word gospel is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, and chapter 52, verse 7. The time for the good news of God's reign has come, Jesus announces in the gospel of Mark. And that time is now here. Mark is saying that Israel's story has reached in Jesus its divinely ordained climax. So look with me just at the opening words of Mark's gospel. This is Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you slowed down and did a Bible study, you'd see that quotation is not just from Isaiah. It's actually a fusion of references from Exodus 23 and Malachi 3. Now, why does Mark attribute the whole citation to Isaiah? Is he confused? No. By naming Isaiah and bringing the citation to a climax in verse 3, and then by quoting Isaiah chapter 40, Mark's letting his readers know that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, must be read in the context of Isaiah's whole vision that God will one day return as the suffering servant who will heal the people through his own wounds. By quoting Malachi, this is also a warning that this coming will be a time of crisis and judgment. Mark's Jesus always presents the readers with a crisis. What will you do with this man? There's also, in verse 2, an echo of Exodus 23, where God is speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai and promises to send a messenger to lead Israel into the promised land. See, Mark is alerting his readers that the entrance of the gospel into the world will be like the occupation of Canaan, a campaign against hostile forces. Which is why, again, if you read Mark's gospel, immediately you see Jesus launching an offensive against demonic powers who perceive that Jesus has come to destroy them. That's also in Mark 1, verse 24. Mark is it's very subtle, but he's letting the reader know, here is a clash of kingdoms, and not just with Caesar, but a great battle is shaping up. Mark 1, verse 3, quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
And Isaiah the prophet is announcing the end of the exile and a new exodus. Isaiah was drawing upon exodus, and now Mark is drawing on both, on both. See, we're only three verses in, but Mark is telling his readers to interpret everything that follows in light of all that's come before in Israel's story. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the promised Davidic king. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Here is God's Son, the promised king, the anointed Christ. Again, Mark uses the term Christ. And remember, it's a role, not a name. But he uses it six more times in his gospel. You can hear it in the taunt of the passers-by in Mark 15. Let the Christ, or the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from his cross. Now remember, back in 2 Samuel, verse, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, where God had made a promise to David that one day David would have a son and his kingdom would be without end and he would reign forever? Well, that promise is now being picked up in the Gospels. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what Mark 1, verse 1 reads. Now, how cool is this? We're just slowly walking through the opening words of Mark's gospel. But again and again, he's evoked the long-for expectation of a promised king who will reclaim David's throne, finally set things right. And we're just in the opening verses. But you could do this with the whole gospel. You could go through verse by verse and link the Old Testament story in Jesus. That's why he was tempted in the wilderness, for example, because Israel was. That's why he fed the crowd, because Israel's God had fed the crowd. Mark is in many ways my favorite of the gospel writers because of his irony, his opening words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the very beginning, he's telling the reader, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But then in Mark's gospel, no one seems to recognize Jesus except who? the demons and the Gentiles, that is, those on the outside. His gospel's perpetual warning to the insiders. You think you understand? One of the best examples of Mark's love for irony is it's finally a blind man who sees and blurts out Jesus' identity. A beggar, blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Mark's accounting, the blind man is the one who can see. He can see, here is the king. But because he's not coming the way most people expected, those who can see, they can't see. Where the royal imagery and the irony becomes thickest in Mark is in the passion of Christ, where Jesus is mocked and flogged as king of the Jews. And then an inscription on the cross identifies him by that title, king of the Jews. He's given a crown, you remember, but it's a crown of thorns and he's taunted. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. It's Mark 15, 32. The reader knows the taunts are ironically true. Here is the King. Truly, this is the Son of God. But he will demonstrate his kingship not by coming down from that cross, but by dying on it. He will manifest his reign from the tree. This is where he is enthroned. This is how he will reign. This is how he will defeat the kings of the earth. He reigns from the tree. And in Mark's gospel, one final touch of irony. Who sees this? Verse 39. And when the centurion saw that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. 
Now you and I have been on the secret since chapter 1, verse 1, but no one else seems to get it except a blind man, the demons, and now finally a pagan Roman centurion. Boy, what an encouragement, but also a warning to all the religious insiders that being on the inside doesn't mean you see clearly. In fact, it more often than not blinds you to the realities of who God is and what he's doing. Mark wasn't the first to say this, but he's pointing out that truth is usually found at the edges and at the bottom. Those at the center and at the top have too much to lose and too much to protect. So when the promised king comes and his great victory is won from the cross and the cross is his climax, it's the Roman centurion who pronounces faith. Jesus' death will redefine what greatness is, what power looks like, what kingship means. We've known he was the son of God since chapter 1, verse 1. But do we believe that Jesus has forever after redefined what those terms mean for us, his followers? This is how his kingdom comes on a cross. Well, what we've done ever so briefly today with Mark, you could do with Matthew, Luke, or John. So what are the Gospels all about? The whole story is telling how God in Christ became king. A new kingdom, the kingdom of God, has been inaugurated, but on a cross. And Jesus was raised to vindicate that he had already won. The resurrection is his vindication. So what are the Gospels all about? They tell the story of Jesus, how Israel's God has come down and become the king. Not just the king of Israel, but of the whole world. That's what the ris- Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus was announcing, a whole new world. And that's what it means to be a disciple. We're learning from him how to live in this new world that he calls the kingdom of God. That's what the Gospels are doing. They're telling the story of Jesus as the climax of Israel's story. So, what do you think? Have we misread the Gospels? Has this caused us to miss the bigness of Jesus' message? Have we severed the Gospels from the story of Israel? When we sever the Gospels from the story of Israel, we bifurcate cross and kingdom. That kingdom language falls out of our language. And we've done something far more troubling than misread the Gospels. We've made them ordinary. And I hope this hits you because the minute we start thinking, oh, I I, I got it, I understand, then we become the target of Mark's irony. And it causes us to miss our mission as God's people to manifest God's kingdom. God won his lion-like victory through a lamb suffering through love. This is how God wins his victories over the kingdoms of the world. The way of the lamb, another Old Testament reference, by the way. That's how the four gospels demand us to read them today, kingdom and cross. The kingdom of God cannot be understood with the cross without the cross nor the cross without the kingdom. Jesus' main message was the kingdom, and his main mission was to go to Golgotha. God has done something in Jesus. The God of Abraham has become the king of the whole world. 
And if we're going to live this new kingdom life that Jesus died to enable us to live, then we have to learn how to inhabit the Jesus story and make it our own. That's all we've been doing over these 22 weeks. I've been uh, challenging us, uh, following the biblical writers, to imagine together how this new kingdom life might be made apparent in our lives here and now. But when we sever cross and kingdom, we bifurcate what the cross achieved from the life God has for us today. We end up pitting lavish grace against radical discipleship. Rather than seeing grace as the fuel to pursue this new life, instead the call of Christ can seem like a burden. To take just one of an infinite number of applications, and what would it look like for us to reimagine our jobs as teachers, real estate brokers, dental hygienists, to reimagine those as ambassadors for Christ, reclaiming that space where we live and work as our invitation to represent Christ's way. God knows we want our lives to count. So Jesus took a child and put this child in the midst of his disciples and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you reimagine your whole way of thinking, your whole way of walking through this world, you'll never enter this new kingdom life I've given to you. It's Matthew 18. Jesus is not talking about when you die. Jesus is saying, unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to look at the kingdom, much less get in. If the new life for Jesus came through humility, through yielding to what he did not want, through crucifixion, through suffering for the sake of others, why should we expect God's kingdom will come in our lives in any other way? Jesus has united his life to ours, and he now calls us in freedom to move into this new life. Once you're getting that, you're becoming much more teachable and open. You're, you're becoming like a child, teachable, humble, dependent. Seek first the kingdom of God. Not only seek, but seek first. Let this desire, the desire for his kingdom, be the desire that orders all of our other desires. Christ was crucified between two thieves. One looked and mocked, but the other looked at this bloodied man and saw the kingdom. Everything we've talked about over these lessons, from justification and adoption to repentance in the Holy Spirit, comes back to this choice, this crisis, this belief. I have set before you life and death, therefore choose life, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Well, thanks for going on this journey together. And as we go about our ways, always remember that in choosing Jesus, we are always choosing life, even when it entails a cross. Okay.